Blog Talk Radio. You want to replay the point? Okay. Mr. Vavrinka wants to replay the point. 15 on. Good evening and welcome to Replay the Point. My name is Jared Pine, joined this evening by Pete Zebron. Pete, we're three days into the U.S. Open. How's it treating you so far? Uh, well, a lot of lot of uh, obviously bigger names being eliminated as one that we just saw with Sanga going out. Uh, he didn't necessarily have a very good uh, North American swing this time around. So I'm just wondering, Jared, if uh, this is what might be uh, coming up in uh, several of the next few majors where it's just unpredictable city as we're seeing in the first three days. Yeah, absolutely. My draw's already been demolished. He's my third quarter finalist to be eliminated. So uh, it's a good thing I, I didn't have any bets going down in this draw. But, uh, Pete, we want to talk about what you were up to just two weeks ago at the Western Southern Open in Mason, Ohio, um, talking about uh, what that tournament was like for you. And I just want to start off with kind of a general question about what the atmosphere of this tournament is like. You've been to so many tennis tournaments from futures, challengers, uh, tour-level events all over North America. Uh, what is it about the Western Southern Open that distinguishes it from some of the other tournaments you've been to? Well, great question, Jared. This is, this, uh, first of all, this was my ninth consecutive year covering the Western and Southern Open. It's first class all the way, and I still remember my very first time going there in um, 2009, and I had a chance to talk to Mr. Bruce Flory, one of the co-directors of the tournament at that point in time, and I, I had some questions I wanted to ask him, most notably, you know, the Masters 1000s were in places like uh, Palm Springs and Miami, Paris, Madrid, Rome, and uh, Cincinnati, Toronto, and, you know, you look at those list of world cities, and you're wondering, Cincinnati, how does this come to be? And I asked him that question, and he said, I've got three answers for you. Number one, you take a look at one of our programs, and you'll notice that we have got the same volunteers here for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, we are in the same time zone as New York, uh, so it's good preparation for the players getting acclimated, uh, similar conditions. Uh, we're one of the oldest tournaments in the world. And, Jared, probably my biggest takeaway that Mr. Flory shared with me, he said, we're like the Green Bay Packers. We're, we're a small market, and we do it the right way, and uh, we've got a very good reputation. And I really like that analogy, and it holds true, and it's a pleasure. And, you know, talking with some of the journalists and photographers that cover everything, uh, this is one of their favorite, if not the favorite, tour stops, and that includes the majors. That's, those are big compliments for Cincinnati. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tournament I've always wanted to go to. It sounds like um, a lot of fun, but I want to get diving into some of that specific, some of the specific action that happened throughout the 2017 Western Southern Open. And we're gonna we're gonna try to keep this short because the truth is, this first topic we're gonna talk about, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about just this. Um, but Pete, you got the opportunity to see Nick Kyrgios's matches, not just see him play. You saw every single match, every single point he played. And uh, obviously he's making headlines again today for his match at the U.S. Open. Um, seeing him up and close in person, uh, what was that experience like for you, and what were some of your takeaways there? Well, absolutely. We could devote probably a couple of shows just on Nick Kyrgios, uh, Jared. But, uh, right, I did see every match, every point, and that included a uh, – about three rain delays against Ivo Karlovic in a match that finished in two days. But starting off uh, on court number three, one of my favorite courts there, Kyrgios uh, taking on the number nine seed, David Goffin, and he got a 6-2, 6-3 win. Uh, Kyrgios' first service game, he got down love 40, no problem at all. Uh, got back to 30-40 and hit three aces to win that game. Uh, if there's anybody on tour that doesn't fret about being down love 40, it's Nick Kyrgios. He just brings the guns and takes care of business, and he did just that against GoFan. Uh, after the first set, uh, GoFan called a medical timeout. He got uh, one of his knees taped up quite a bit. That said, Jared, uh, midway through the second set, Kyrgios in absolute agony uh, with every every forehand, every backhand that he hit, just in 
true agony, and I couldn't believe that he was continuing to play, but he did fight on. And uh, after a couple of, couple of matches later, I asked him about that match. I said, I, I, you know, I'm kind of surprised you're here right now that you didn't necessarily retire against Gofan. You were, you were out of it. You were in pain. He said, yeah, but so was he. And, uh, you know, I had won the set, and uh, I was just hoping to, uh, to get it done. Um, so I, I credit Nick Kyrgios. You know, a lot of people are, are on him for always shapes and forms, uh, retiring, not really caring in his own words. But he showed me a lot in that match, Jared, three, three games deep in the second set where he soldiered it out and got the job done. And you look at the scoreline, 6-2, 6-3, and that's an impressive win for Kyrgios. Uh, next round, he played Delgopolov, and uh, this was a win for him. Six-three, seven-six, six in the uh, eight-six in the second set breaker. Delgopolov, I should make, mention, survived 24 aces in two sets against Kevin Anderson the match before, so he was in good form. Kyrgios just took care of business there. Uh, next, uh, he played uh, Ivo Karlovich, and this is the match that got stopped at uh, after two all in the first set. Got stopped again uh, with Karlovich leading 4-3 in the first set, and uh, that was the only really rainy day we had in Cincy, and that was delayed into the following day. Kyrgios got broken uh, the first uh, game back, and, and Karlovich served that out. So uh, Karlovich with the first set. Uh, Karlovich had his chances in the second set, uh, was up a break. Kyrgios got a break very late as as. Karlovich served for the match. They went to a breaker. Nick Kyrgios squeaked it out, 8-6. And then midway through the third set, Nick Kyrgios breaks Ivo Karlovich, and you're starting to feel good things about Nick Kyrgios. And uh, that was true. Uh, electric atmosphere the next round, Jared, as he took on Rafael Nadal on center court. Won the first four games of the match, charged out to a four-love lead uh, before Nadal sort of corrected course. Um Kyrgios at that point had hit at least one tweener in the match, in every match, and the the crowd on court three was very appreciative of his showmanship when he played when he played Gofan, even against Karlovich, he hit some crazy shots. When he hit a tweener against Nadal and he was up big in the first set, the crowd booed, and I, I really couldn't understand why that was. Uh, they didn't appreciate it. They thought maybe he was showing Rafa up there. Uh, I asked Kyrgios about that afterwards, and he said, "Now, you know, this is something that I do in practice. It's probably a bad habit, and, uh, you know, I just do that in matches. Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times uh, said it best. Uh, we were in the photo pit together uh, for that Nadal match, and I said after the match, I said, Ben, I can't believe they booed him. And I, I think Ben summed it up very well, Jared, when he said, the Nick Kyrgios brand doesn't play well in middle America. Uh, I get that all the way. He's loved in New York, uh, probably around the world with with these kinds of shots, but uh, Middle America, not so much. Nick Kyrgios, 6-2-7-5 over Nadal into the semifinals where he beat David Ferrer in two breakers, a nice run for Ferrer who took out team in the quarterfinals quite convincingly. And then finally the end of the road for Nick Kyrgios, losing to Grigor Dimitrov, 6-3-7-5 in the final. But uh, – Pure joy uh, to watch Nick Kyrgios play up close and personal. Absolutely. And, and you said something kind of shocking there towards the beginning that maybe people didn't notice. You said uh, number 13 player in the world, David Goffin, played Nick Kyrgios, one of the biggest attractions in all of tennis right now, on court three. Now, to those who, who don't know what Cincinnati's like, um, that's hard to explain how those two players could be playing each other in the first round when all the top players have buys. They're playing each other in the first round, and it's all the way down on court three. Uh, just talk a little bit about that. Explain why that's the case. Well, a couple things. Uh, obviously, Cincinnati became a joint event, I believe, in uh, 2011 or 12. So court three is, is a brand-new court. It's, it's a very nice court, Jared. Um, uh, people can get in and out of there at any time, uh, at upper level. They don't necessarily have to wait for a changeover. It's a little bit distracting if you're a player or even – you know, sitting near the court, the fact that we can have jailbreaks and people can come in at any time. But honestly, court three is is almost as equal, if not equal, to court two, the grandstand. Uh, it's it's very similar in number of seats, and um, all the seats are first come, first serve on court three, whereas there are some reserved seats. 
quite a few on the grandstand court. So uh, when you hear court three, uh, it's it's really 2A, if you will. Uh, no no shame at all in playing in court three. I even remember Andy Murray going out there, and some of the Brits really weren't too happy that the fact that he was playing on court three. But again, let's just chalk it up to the fact that uh, it's uh, it's probably court 2A, if you will. It, it's it's almost like another grandstand, but it's more accessible for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so just talk to us a little bit about what it's like to see Nick Kyrgios in person. I think most people have seen him a ton on TV. Everyone watches him on TV. Uh, but but in person, what are some of the things that you don't see and hear when you're watching him on TV that you get to experience seeing Nick Kyrgios in person? Sure, uh, absolutely. A lot of, lot of communication between he and his box. Uh, his mother was there in this tournament. It's not coaching. I sat near his coaches in the photo pit uh, for the final, and it's a come on, mate, or uh, in some cases, you know, if if, uh, if someone's serving to stay in a set or is down, you know, love 15, they'll say something like pressure's on him. Just reminders. It's not coaching at all. But um, what I found is Nick really – really needs to have encouragement uh, from his box. Uh, You know, when I was not sitting near his box, I couldn't hear anything. But when I got to hear the cadences of the voices, I could be sitting all the way across the quarter diagonal from from where they were sitting, and I could hear, you know, the Australian twang, come on, mate. And um, Nick looks over to his box quite a bit. And uh, there's one thing I shared with you before we came on the air, Jared. He was a little frustrated. He he was hitting um, – he, he hit some 142 serves. He actually, in one match, uh, hit two 132-mile-an-hour second-serve aces. He did that twice in one match. Uh, that's just Nick Kyrgios tennis for you. But um, uh, he also said, Jared, he hit a monster serve that came back and he lost the point on the next forehand. And he said uh, sort of disgustingly to himself, biggest serve on the planet, what a waste. So um, Kyrgios has some running conversations with himself, but uh, he really looks to his box for for support almost at each and every point. He needs that. Yeah, and so one of the common criticisms of Nick Kyrgios is that it often appears that he is not giving his best effort. Um, As I mentioned, he lost in the first round of the U.S. Open earlier today. And so when you look at his results, what you see is he struggles in the big events, but does really well in some of the smaller events, reaching the finals of the 1,000. He's won some smaller titles earlier in the year, yet throughout the Grand Slams, four Grand Slams, he has two wins. He hasn't done any better than the second round at any of the Grand Slams this year. That seems to suggest to me that the issue for him isn't a lack of effort. Um, For some reason, he's not getting it done in the Grand Slams. Is this just a coincidence? He's a guy who's reached two Grand Slam quarterfinals before, uh, so it's not like he can't play five-set tennis. Is it just a coincidence that his struggles have happened to come at the times when he's at the Grand Slam? Or is there something more to this that he's not able to relate the success he had in Cincinnati to success at the U.S. Open? Well, I'm going to answer this about two or three different ways, and this comes as a result of being at his pressers uh, after he beat Nadal and then uh, after the semifinal and the final. Um, he loves being on the big stage. In fact, he had med- made mention uh, he said, you know, here, you know, two weeks ago I, I lost to Tennis Sandgren, and here I am beating Rafael Nadal. And he said, you know, he, he joked around, but not really. He said, you guys know I tank a lot of matches. Um, you know, I was playing in Lyon and playing in front of 15 people, and I lost to Nicholas Kicker. And he says, but here I am on the big stage in Cincy, and I beat Rafael Nadal. So uh, he loves the big stage. Obviously, if he's playing on a backwater court, uh, that affects him. He he wants the spotlight. He wants the stage. And uh, sure, he he's earned it. As far as I'm concerned, uh, in, in in most cases. So that's that's one element of of it, Jared. Um, the fact that you know he he wants the big stage. He wants playing big prime time players as well. Um, I'll liken it almost to a basketball analogy. You know, the Detroit Pistons with Coach Chuck Daly, the Bad Boys. Dennis Rodman was on that team, and Daly, uh, bless him for all the personalities that he had to work with there, told Rodman one simple thing. He said, don't, you know, when you're out there, just, just don't think. Just play. If Dennis Rodman is sitting at the free throw line thinking about trying to make the basket, he's going to shoot air balls. We know that. If he doesn't think and he just throws it up, there's a good chance it's going to go in. He's a pro basketball player. So I use that analogy with respect to Nick Kyrgios. It's almost like 
you know, don't even think, do your thing. You, you, you've said all along, you really don't care about tennis. You, you'd rather play hoop. Uh, you're not up for it. So just go out there and be loose and you're going to uncork 132 mile an hour second serve aces time and time again. You're going to hit uh, some tweener shots because that's what you do in practice. And so that translates for you in the game. He said something after he lost today. He said, you know, I, here I am. I played an hour of basketball before the semifinals against Ferrer, and I really didn't care so much, and, and I won it. And um, here I am. I, I come into the U.S. Open, and I'm serious and determined. I've been playing so well, and, and I injure my shoulder. So it's almost sort of like if he does put an expectation on himself, perhaps a crash and burn. You mentioned he's a, he's got two wins in majors this year. And uh, if he go, just goes out there, in my, in my opinion, um, you know, maybe his tournament should have ended against uh, Gofan with an injury himself. Uh, he gets through that, and all of a sudden he's running like a wild Mustang out there, playing like one as well, and uh, the wins keep racking up. With getting off to a four-love lead against Rafael Nadal, beating him in straight sets, that's what Nick Kyrgios is capable of. Unfortunately, as we saw today uh, at the U.S. Open, if he does maybe start to take it seriously, maybe he starts to tighten up. We don't know how this injury came about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of great points in there. Um, a lot of other things we could talk about, about Nick Kyrgios, but we're 15 minutes into the show, Pete, and we haven't even <laughs> mentioned the Cincinnati champion yet. Grigor Dimitrov takes home his first career Grand Slam, or excuse me, Masters 1000 title. Um, you got to see him both in the semifinals and the finals. And I'm guessing what you saw in those two matches was uh, very similar to what it was like in his other matches because Grigor Dimitrov did not drop a set in the entire tournament, uh, beat all of his opponents in straight sets, starting with Feliciano Lopez, backed that up with Juan Martin Del Potro, followed by Yuchi Sugita, then home favorite John Isner, and then another big server, Nick Kyrgios. And uh, against Kyrgios, didn't even need tiebreakers. Um, so you got to see those two matches at the end where he faced big servers, even his first two matches he faced big servers. Um, mm-hmm. talk, talk to us about what that was like, um, what, what you saw from him. Why was he able to have success against two guys that hit two of the biggest serves in all tennis? Well, I think he was just feeling it. He, he, he had a lot of confidence. I think the win against Del Potro really gave him uh, a lot of confidence as well. So uh, that he was off and running. Then he just blew Sugita off the court. Jared only winning, um, uh, only losing three games there, but um, not only some of the biggest servers, but some of the biggest hitters. In fact, John Isner in his press conference said, I hit two of the biggest forehands of my life back-to-back to uh, to Dimitrov in a tiebreaker, and they both came back with interest. Uh, Isner, you know, felt pretty good about his game. He was right there, but that's how well Dimitrov was playing. And, uh, again, um, Nick Kyrgios, in my opinion, little bit of a wounded warrior, although he did have two consecutive break points early in the midway, excuse me, midway through the first set where, uh, you know, had he broken, who knows what that could have done for him and concurrently Dimitrov. It didn't happen. Give Dimitrov credit for uh, correcting course. And um, uh, Grigor Dimitrov playing excellent tennis in Cincinnati, as you mentioned, didn't drop a set. He won the first three sets of, at the U.S. Open as well, and all of a sudden with the, the draw crumbling before our eyes, who knows? Uh, Dimitrov felt very good about uh, what he accomplished in Cincinnati. Well, yeah, and that's, that's what I wanted to ask you about, um, where you think he'll do at the U.S. Open. You know, I, I've said for a long time, I think, the players with the best defensive returns are Gael Monfils, Roger Federer, and Grigor Dimitrov. And, you know, I think that's a frustrating thing for guys like Feliciano Lopez, Juan Martin Del Potro, John Isner, Nick Kyrgios to hit bombs of serves, and then it comes right back. Um, You know, their best weapons just neutralized right away. I think that's what made Dimitrov so successful. So then what do you think he can – will he be able to turn this into success at the U.S. Open? I have him reaching the second week. I don't think he'll be able to get past David Goffin. Um, That's how I have it filled out in my draw. What are your predictions for Grigor Dimitrov for the U.S. Open? Yeah, I think he can go pretty far. Again, the fact that he's feeling it and, uh, again, some of the usual suspects either didn't enter the tournament or uh, we, we've suddenly got questions about nearly everybody in the in the draw these days, Jared. Um, uh, uh, yeah, for sure, reaching the second week could go even further. 
not necessarily sure where exactly he'll end up. Um, I mean, these days, uh, why not throw him in as a title contender? Because this is sort of what's happening in the ATP. I think not only now, but uh, possibly for the next year or two, where there's a lot of uncertainty, where uh, all of a sudden it's not the same usual individuals that we can count on to win. Um, not really sure uh, in, if, if Grigor can continue this in best-of-five formats, but if if bigger names keep dropping out, then I think he, he can even be a semifinalist. Mm-hmm. And moving on to another player who we're used to see be one of the top seeds, actually came in this tournament unseeded, David Ferrer. Uh, he has been a stalwart in the top ten for a long time. This has been a rough year for him. He's dropped out of the top ten. Uh, has had some struggles both physically and just not having the kind of results he's used to getting or were used to him getting. Uh, but in Cincinnati, it seemed like he was able to write the course, uh, reach the semifinals. Talk to us about uh, seeing David Ferrer in person. Yep, I saw a little bit of uh, of some of his match against uh, Tipserovich where he beat him in three and then, um, uh, again, was in a, a Spanish uh, uh, reporter requested a an interview with him so it was in a small interview room and a few few of us american journalists went down there and they had the english questions first so we had some questions for david and uh one of the things he said was that uh, he he considers every match right now to be a blessing uh the the he he beat he beat up dominic team who was in pretty good form in cincinnati jared although team doesn't necessarily like those conditions I missed the first set. I was at a gathering uh, with some people that I see every year, a little tailgate party, if you will. Uh, I saw the score that uh, Ferrer had beaten team. I thought to myself, no problem. I'm still going to see two sets of tennis. I sat uh, in the photo pit on grandstand for the second set, and David Ferrer was just hammering the ball, and Dominic team had no answers. And uh, that was that was pretty remarkable to see, uh, given how uh, team had been playing earlier in the week against Fognini, against Manorino. But um, Ferrer did say after that match that that was the best match he played in uh, in the last two years. Uh, I likened it to almost how uh, Marin Cilic was playing last year in Cincinnati. That's how crisp and on David Ferrer was at 35. Again, he won a title earlier this year, and semifinal points for him in Cincinnati will do him a lot of good, although unfortunately for him, he was stunned in the first round at the U.S. Open. Just, you know, I don't think we should be surprised by any results anymore. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of great points there, Pete. And, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned the big four yet, and I'm kind of enjoying it. We're going to talk about some different players than we normally get to, but obviously Rafael Nadal back to number one in the world now uh, was taken out by Nick Kyrgios. He's now under the management of Carlos Moya. Uh, this has been an interesting year for Rafael Nadal. Lots of success, um, some disappointing losses at times, uh, but overall really positive year. Great to see Rafael Nadal back at the top of tennis. Uh, what do you make of his state right now? Uh, what should our expectations be of Rafael Nadal for the rest of 2017? Well, I'll look at back at uh, some of what I saw in Cincinnati. You know, he played Gasquet, and you know Gasquet's never beaten him, so that was that was sort of a win before they even took the court. And then he beat uh, Ramos Vinales, uh, tight first set there for Rafa, but then Nick Kyrgios blew him off the court. I asked him uh, in pre-tournament presser about uh, about Carlos Moya, and he you know kind of gave one of these answers. I've answered this before, and then he went on and credited the whole team, his entourage, Tony, and I, I get that as well. That wasn't uh, a slant or a slam toward anybody. I was just wondering maybe what the Carlos ingredients were. But uh, one thing that I did notice, Jared, is that Rafa uh, always, always, year in and year out, again, ninth year of covering since he really – gave away the store in terms of answering questions in press, went way overboard in, in over-describing how he goes about doing things. And I noticed a different Rafael Nadal this year, much more guarded. Uh, I've not seen this uh, at all from him. And I'm just wondering, and I've asked a few people who are big Rafa fans, if, uh, if this might indeed be uh, the Moya influence, and they nodded their head. So it's a different Rafa Nadal right now. Obviously, he's been through a lot. He was asked the question about, you know, other guys missing this tournament, and uh, he he kind of had a mild chuckle, saying, you know, I, you know, yeah, I've been the injured, most injured out of everybody, and so I get it. You know, we're not 20 years old anymore, 
That said, um, he's playing very well, but this is historically, Jared, a time of the year where Rafael Nadal runs out of gas. And, uh, again, he has yet to win the World Tour Finals at the very end. He's come close on a couple of occasions. Um, the way it's, you know, the way everybody has this penciled, he would play Federer in the semifinals. Uh, he had a little bit of a scare in the first set yesterday against Lodjevic. Federer obviously had a big scare against mm-hmm. Tiafo. And we, we're going to wonder, you know, if we're going to even get the semifinal. But, you know, looking at uh, the field right now, Rafael Nadal looks to be the fresher and playing the best out of anybody. Yeah, well, you mentioned him, so let's go there. Francis Tiafo gets the big win over Alexander Zverev. A great matchup of two of the most exciting young players in tennis right now. Uh, Zverev has been catching a lot of headlines this year for all kinds of success that he's had. Uh, it's really been a brilliant year for him. Uh, but in comes Tiafo and uh, really kind of steals the show in front of his home crowd in the United States. Uh, talk about your impressions of Tiafo. I remember a year ago after seeing him, you weren't so high on him. Uh, what, where are you, what's your take on where he's at now? Well, really impressed. And, and again, if he beats Zverev or not, uh, my takeaway, Jared, is, you know, the Tiafo I saw the last couple of years is someone who wins two or three consecutive points and struts around the court a little bit, loses two or three consecutive points, very mopey, bad body language. I saw none of that. Uh, granted, he was probably dialed in, uh, you know, amped up, but uh, looking to uh, to play Zverev, and, and he got the win there. Granted, Zverev uh, had just played 12 matches in 14 days. He actually played doubles with Leander Pays as a, as a favor to Pays. Probably had no business playing that match. But uh, Zverev Im- had admitted that, uh, you know, early in the second set, he was only at about 10%. That's taking nothing away from Tiafo. I really liked what I saw. He's grown into his body nicely and uh, competed well against uh, John Isner as well in Cincinnati, Jared. Really like what I saw from Tiafo. Good energy, good competitive nature, and again, we saw that alive and well yesterday against Federer at the U.S. Open as well. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, a lot of young guns at this tournament. Also had Tommy Paul and Kareem Kachanov, two guys you guys saw see, see play. Um, talk about either one of them. What, what were some of your takeaways from watching those guys in person? Well, I'll start with Paul and. Uh, you know, we talked on the show, I asked you for uh, just a description. If somebody had not seen Paul, who would you describe him as uh, comparable? And you said Kyrgios. And uh, I did see some of that in his game. Jared, uh, I saw a little bit more uh, of uh, Sebastian Grosjean, who ironically is coaching Kyrgios at the moment at the U.S. Open. But I saw um, a lot of the early part of the um, Tommy Paul-Donald Young match Here's one for you. Donald Young played Cincinnati for the sixth time. He has yet to win a set. Um, Tommy Paul uh, made that uh, 12 consecutive sets by taking uh, taking out Donald Young in straight sets. I really liked the competitive nature of Tommy Paul. Uh, Donald Young, very frustrated, screaming at his box at times. Uh, but I think that had to do with the uh, the game of Tommy Paul. Uh, I liked what I saw. Uh, he necessarily didn't play well against Isner. Uh, that's okay. A nice win for Tommy Paul against Donald Young. Kareem Kachanoff, I, I was really expecting more. Um, really was not all that impressed in, in what I saw from him on court. Um, not happy with how he was playing. Perhaps it was just a bad week for him, but uh, I was expecting a much bigger game, and uh, that's not exactly what I saw. So my sample size of him... <laughs> is about one and a half. So uh, I'm going to have to give that one an incomplete and see what I see the next time around with catching off Jared. Yeah, absolutely. Another young player at the, at the tournament uh, was Jared Donaldson. He's obviously out early at the U S open, uh, had a tough draw facing Luca Pui, um, but did get a handful of wins in Cincinnati, uh, took advantage of, of a nice draw, I think, um, but, but made the most of it. A uh, good experience for him getting that far in Cincinnati. Yeah, and uh, a nice win against Batista Gut, uh, the number 12 seed there. Then he took out uh, the lucky loser, Ramanathan. I think they played a couple of times before, and Donaldson got through that. So all of a sudden, he's up against uh, Basilashvili. I saw the tail end of that set, uh, that match, Jared, where Donaldson closed him out in the second set tiebreaker. And 
what do we know? Gerald Donaldson in the quarterfinals of a Masters 1000, where uh, he competed very well against John Isner, uh, losing that one in a breaker in five in the second set. So nice result for Donaldson. Um, I did see him compete fairly well a couple of years ago against Jerzy Janowitz in Cincinnati as well. So He's just one of these guys, sort of like an Isner, that uh, plays his best tennis in the United States. And so I guess maybe we shouldn't have been surprised at the, at the run he was able to put together, uh, getting to the quarters, given uh, whom he played and how the draw sort of uh, was blown up uh, before the tournament started. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Alexander Dolgopolov, a player that always does well in Cincinnati, it seems, has yep. had some great results throughout his career threatened Djokovic at one point when Djokovic was really at the top of the sport this week or this year uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in Cincinnati came through qualifying then defeated Kevin Anderson in the first round ended up losing to Nick Kyrgios um, but w- what were some of your thoughts of watching Alexander Dolgopolov the player with the fastest service motion not necessarily the fastest serve but fastest service motion uh, in all of tennis yeah always a treat to see him play Jared uh, uh, again, nice win for him over El Pelka in, in three, first round of qualifying, then uh, takes out another American in Mackenzie McDonald. Uh, first round match against Kevin Anderson. Jared in two sets. Anderson hit 24 aces, 16 alone in the second set. No problem. The dog shakes that one off and uh, and gets the win. Very impressed uh, to see that. I saw the last uh, probably 20 minutes of that on, on court number 10. Uh, that was old court number three, uh, one of the best courts in tennis, a nice sunken court. Um, credit to Dolgopolov, who uh, played very well against Kevin Anderson to get the job done. Then back on court three, we talked about court three, Nick Kyrgios, uh, another match for him on court three playing Dolgopolov, sort of a funny uh, t- funny point in that match, Jared. Uh, Dolgopolov served a, uh, a second serve that uh, that was uh, not called out. The chair called it out. Kyrgios sort of went over there, had made, made a funny look, and uh, said, I don't know, it was, it was pretty close. You might want to challenge that. And uh, Dolgopolov challenged it, and... Um, it was probably about uh, two and a half ball lengths long, and Nick sort of gave a sheepish smile and said, sorry about that, mate. Well, uh, that threw Golgopolov off by a couple of points, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what Nick was seeing there, but uh, I'll just throw another Nick Kyrgios quip out there because it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, He gives thumbs up to players when they, when they do well on court, but uh, here he is playing Rafael Nadal, and Nadal just hits a patented shot, and Nick Curio says to Rafa Nadal, nice shot. <laughs> I just thought that was the – I just got a big kick out of that. Uh, here we are going back to Kyrgios. But, uh, yeah, the kyrgios Dugopolov match was uh, was very well played by both players, and um, that's just the form Kyrgios was in where he, he had a very convincing win over Dugopolov. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- these insights, Pete, are really great to hear. Um, really a special thing seeing Nick Kyrgios in person. I've only – had the opportunity to do it a handful of times. Um, but really, every time you see this guy play, uh, he gives you something memorable. Uh, he's just yeah. such a fascinating tennis player to watch. I think he's great for the sport. Um, but with that, Pete, any, anything else you want to talk about from the main draw? Um, yeah, John Isner, again, I'll just go back to him. I didn't really list him in the outline, but again, he was very, he was in a good place. He he felt pretty good about how he played. You know, he threw everything at Grigor Dimitrov, like you said, hit two of the hardest bat, uh, forehands of his life. Uh, didn't necessarily uh, win that match. Uh, two tiebreakers, no break points in either semifinal, Jared, in, uh, in Dimitrov over Isner and Kyrgios over Ferrer. I, I do want to make mention of Dominic Team. Talked about him a little bit. He absolutely blew Fabio Fognini off the grandstand court. Um, and then um, something I've noticed uh, that really team the last few years as a youngster he'd be gritting his teeth i don't know if that was somewhat of a of a nervous tick or what um but uh he was very very loose against uh, fognini and then uh, i saw him going back to the teeth gritting when he played adrian manorino in a very very tight match uh credit manorino for playing well who again got to the uh Canada quarterfinals and, and again uh, reached uh, the third round here and losing the team in two tiebreakers, Jared. 
team had to play exceptionally well there. But um, I was a little surprised to see, you know, maybe that nervousness in team. But that's uh, that's something that Adrian Manorino can do to a player, uh, someone who's really off the radar that's had himself a very nice hardcourt season. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with that, let's take a quick look over at the qualifying draw. A lot of big names in this event, um, including a battle between two former top 10 players. How often do you get to see that? Uh, former top 10 players playing each other, uh, not on the, the senior tour or anything like that. It is qualifying for Cincinnati. It was Mikhail Yusni taking on Ernest Golbis in the second round. Uh, talk to us about that match, Pete. Yeah, absolutely. A wonderful match to attend. Uh, Court 10 again uh, that was packed. People recognized what that match was. And uh, Gulbis got to the second round, Jared, just schooling and outclassing uh, Andre Rublev, who we'll talk about here in a little bit. But for Eugenie to play Gulbis in qualifying to advance to the first round of the Masters 1000, that was a special treat. That one was circled on everybody's uh, order of play for Sunday. And, uh, yeah, very competitive match. It went three. Mikhail Yuzny just a little bit better than uh, Ernest Gulbis, who was really annoyed at anyone and everyone uh, and anything in the crowd. A um, couple people were heckling him. He let him have it. Uh, he went to the chair, pointed people out specifically. He wanted people ejected. Uh, I think some other people kind of got a kick out of that and were starting to heckle a little bit, which really wasn't too fun for any anybody. But uh, you know, Gulbis, uh, there w- it was a Sunday, so there was an airplane in the sky carrying a, a Star Wars banner of some sort, and so that annoyed Gulbis as well. And just, uh, it was Ernest Gulbis, uh, you know, just typical Ernest Gulbis, but uh, Mikhail Yuzhny, another veteran, took care of business. And so, again, a real treat to see that in the second round of qualities. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Ernst Golvis being a little bit upset. Well, the same could be said of his first opponent in qualifying, Andre Rublev, who you mentioned earlier. Um, talk about what some of your takeaways were seeing Andre Rublev in person. This is someone a lot of people, including myself, really think uh, could be one of the top players in tennis someday. Um, he, I've been a little bit disappointed by him so far. I thought he'd be further along in his progress than he is uh, right now. Um, with that said, he is still playing and. Uh, some of the top-level professional tennis matches. Uh, so what were your thoughts seeing him in person? Well, I was looking forward to it, number one. Again, uh, he was playing Gulbis in the first round. He was the second seed in qualifying, Jared. I know you're very high on him. And uh, uh, he managed just six games against Gulbis, losing two and four, just totally outclassed. I saw flashes and flares of what he's able to do, but it was just neutralized against Ernest Gulbis on, on that particular day. Three different times, he he really looked like he wanted to just smash his racket, and he he wound up and you know came close to doing that, but it didn't happen. He you know right two three inches above the ground, he he pulled it back, but you could tell he was not happy with uh, the way he was playing. But I, I I would think that it's more his opponent on that day um, playing someone like Gulbis uh, that, that just didn't give him anything. He wasn't able to get on track. Although the line score was two and four, he played a little bit better in the second set, but that was an early break. So basically that match was done and dusted after a very short period of time. Yeah, and also uh, an, another player from my neck of the woods, Ernesto Escobedo, a Southern California native. Uh, he lost in the first round of the U.S. Open, but was also in action at the Cincinnati qualifying. Uh, he lost to Ante Pavic. Um, talk about uh, that match and, and some of your takeaways there. I was looking forward to this one. Number one, obviously, to see Escobedo. He uh, came to our, our 50,000 challenger in Tempe in February. I didn't see him play because he was knocked out by Novikov early. I did see him warm up. But um, Antti Pavic is someone who uh, about three years ago also came through the Cincinnati Qualies. I really like the big guy um, from Croatia, Jared. He's got a good game. Um, I've just been injured for a long period of time, and I was able to talk to uh, one of his co- – actually, let's talk about the Pavic-Escobedo uh, match. Pavic was blocking everything back that Escobedo threw at him. Uh, Pavic took the first set 7-5. I left that match at that point in time, um, saw the line score after a little bit surprising that the final score was 7-5, 6-2. Um, I went to go see the second mat- round match, anti-Pavic, taking on the number one seed, Zhao Souza. Uh, he lost that match 4-2. and two. It was very competitive 
in the first set. But as I was walking into the stadium, uh, I, uh, was t- I, I ran into Pavic's coach, and he's now working at the Pistolosi uh, Academy right now. And so I was talking with his coach uh, saying, you know, I remember seeing him here three years ago. He said, yeah, he's been quite ill for quite some time. And um, I said, you know, you have to be happy about his first-round match against Escobedo. He said, yeah, Escobedo was just uh, sort of imploding, very unhappy with uh, with how he was playing, bemoaning his game, stuff wasn't working. And I said, well, you know, I know he's got a big serve, and uh, your guy was just blocking everything back. He said, yeah, exactly. And uh, I said, do you think possibly that the youngster Escobedo saw someone with an alternate next to his name thinking, you know, okay, this guy's ranked about six or 700, no problem. He said, yeah, probably Ernesto probably didn't have any idea who Ante was, and uh, that played into it as well. So, yeah, um, Jared, second Masters 1,000 in a row where there were three alternates in the qualifying draw, and I got some nice insight from Ante's coach. Earlier in that week, he played in and lost a $10,000 future tournament in St. Louis. Uh, placed a call to Cincy to see if he can get it in as an alternate. He did, and as his coach said, you know, this was good for him. Rather than playing guys at the future level at $10,000 tournaments, here he is playing guys in the top 100 in the world. Very good showing for himself. Beat Escobedo in straights. Competed very well against Joe Sousa, the number one seed. Just missed the main draw berth. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, lot of really good insights there. I appreciate that, Pete. And, uh, Four players from the USTA received wild cards. Mackenzie McDonald, UCLA graduate, and the standout college player Riley Opelka, the tallest player in tennis history, uh, professional tennis history. Christopher Eubanks, uh, another college standout, and also a player I've never heard of, John McNally, who took Yonko Tipsarovic to a third-set tiebreaker. You got to see McNally in person. Uh, I I really know nothing about him, to be honest. Uh, Tell us a little bit about John McNally. Yeah, I, I, thank you for that. I, I was tipped off by – I saw his name in the draw and kind of shrugged as well and heard a little bit in the press room that he, he's a local kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he's in the 900s in his rankings and he's playing Tipsarevich. Uh Obviously quite a bit going on on the grounds of the first day of qualifying. Can't get everywhere. Got a couple of uh, text messages from some local uh, journalists who said, hey, you know, check out McNally. One one journalist, photographer in particular, Justin Cohn, was actually coached by McNally's mother uh, at a younger age. So that was interesting. And uh, here he is, John McNally, wild card in the 900s, uh, takes a cert- first set from Tipsarevich, 7-5, uh, kind of goes away in the second set. I, I, I picked that up late in the first set, so I saw him win that first set. Again, I went to go see something else. Tipsarevich corrects course, wins the second set 6-1. They get to a third set breaker, and uh, McNally was right there with a shot, but Tipsarevich gets the job done 7-5 in the breaker. Um, nice uh, nice effort from McNally. Then Tipsarevich plays the youngster from Georgia Tech, another string bean, if you will, another tall guy, Christopher Eubanks, who took out for Tangelo in the first uh, round of qualifying, Jared. Christopher Eubanks, I saw the uh, second set of this match against Yanko Tipsarevich, beats Tipsarevich 6-3, 6-4 to advance to the second round, to advance to the main draw. Big, big uh, win for Eubanks over Tipsarevich. And, um, again, this is someone who has a lot of energy and effort, very fearless on the court. He just crushes every ball, almost sort of like a Fernando Gonzalez type of approach, but with confidence, with authority, and uh, – sort of drummed Yanko Tipsarevich off the court to uh, get to the main draw. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know you've seen your fair share of college tennis over the years, is, and uh, that's one of the levels of tennis I particularly enjoy. And Eubanks being a player that came out of college tennis, as I mentioned, a standout at Georgia Tech. Um, do you Can you tell when you watch him play that this is a guy that used to be playing in that team tennis setting? Um is that one of the things where just when he walks on the court, you know, okay, here's here's a college graduate. Uh, is it obvious by the way he plays and conducts himself on court? I think so. Um, I, he, again, fresh out of college, Jared, 
fist pumps after every point that he wins. I, I mentioned about Tiafo kind of strutting around when he wins a couple of points. Eubanks, uh, literally after every point he wins, it's it's uh, you know a three or four fist pump uh, uh, job, if you will. Uh, I guess if that's what it takes to keep you pumped up. Uh, again, the way he plays tennis is, as I mentioned, fearless. But I don't know if you have to do that. I, I mean, the overall tennis fans know Ana Ivanovic has sort of a low below the waist fist pump um, quite often. Eubanks. Uh, if you picture John Isner, you know, after he wins a game or even a set, he'll he'll do a fist pump uh, with authority. Uh, Eubanks is doing this after every point that he wins uh, nearly. And so getting back to your question, sure, that that's the dead giveaway, if you will, that uh, this guy is, uh, is part of a team scene in the college game, and um, he's not yet, uh, quote, graduated from that. Yeah, all right. Well, that's – um, about it for Cincinnati. I, I want to move on to the U.S. Open to wrap up the show briefly. Um, but before we go there, any any other takeaways from your week there in Mason, Ohio? No, just uh, always great to be back. Uh, see a lot of familiar faces, although many people were missing this time around. Uh, only one British reporter, uh, you know, Andy Murray, was, was not there. Uh, Jamie Murray did pretty well <clears throat> in the doubles. But uh, so uh, because um, – Obviously, we didn't get Federer. We watched the tail end of his final in Canada on TV against Verev, and we kind of knew right then and there he wasn't going to be there. So it was a little light in the press this time around for uh, obvious reasons with the depleted draw, but um, always a pleasure to to be in in Cincy. Uh, They treat us so well there, and uh, highlight of my year is is to be able to go there, and as I mentioned, uh, being able to see each and every Nick Kyrgios point from – Pretty much a courtside vantage point each and every time was was thrilling in my mind. Absolutely. Lots of great commentary from Cincinnati, Pete, and we really appreciate it. Um, Really invaluable insight from you there. Uh, But as I mentioned, let's let's head over to the U.S. Open very quickly to to wrap up the show. And um, it's a similar situation to what we saw in Cincinnati. A lot of top players missing. Um, So I think some of your insight from Cincinnati will be particularly useful here. And just talking about what can we expect? Just how wide open is this tournament? Obviously, Novak Djokovic not playing. Andy Murray not playing. Stan Wawrinka is not playing. Nadal uh, just came off a poor result in Cincinnati. Federer, we're not sure how he's holding up Glee. Chilich missed Cincinnati with an injury, and so we're not sure how he's doing. And then Juan Martin Del Potro is the only other defending champion in the draw. So I'll put it this way. Do you think we have a brand-new U.S. Open champion being crowned in 2017, or do you think it's one of the defending champions who's going to find a way back to glory? Well, be- yeah, before we go there, obviously Federer and Nadal uh, both on the top half, uh, Murray pulling out late. Uh, Federer would have gone into the number two slot, and we would have uh, possibly had a, a different uh, scenario all the way across the board. Uh, you know, we really have to scratch our heads uh, with respect to Federer. Uh, I've, I've heard from uh, you know, Justin Fitzpatrick, who's called in on this show before and, and talked and given great insight, Jared, uh, you know, saying his serve just isn't there, his, his, his back is, is not doing well. Uh, that's I, I trust uh, his his, uh, his words there. Patrick Mortagalu tweeted out that his, you know, his, the legs just aren't in the serve. Um for for Roger Federer to go five sets with Francis Tiafo, something's got to be not 100%, taking nothing away from Tiafo, But, um, you know, let's look at what Federer has accomplished, in not only his career, but even in 2017. And you go back to, I, I again, watching the Canada final. Unfortunately, he had nothing on his serve at the very end against Varev there either. And so I, I saw some similarities there. And so I was even wondering – you know, win or lose yesterday, w- would this be Federer's last match at the U.S. Open? Because I, I just don't know. I, and, again, we we take a look at Murray, who's in great deal of pain, who's not there. That That's sort of what Kyrgios looked like for those three games against Gofan. I mean, if, if your body's just not able to let you go, then there's not much you can do. And so big, big question mark uh, for Federer. That said, I think the cream's still going to rise. This is this is a major. You know, we see Zverev winning those two 1,000s. But, um, you know, yeah, Chilich got the job done a number of years ago. Del Potro even longer. The cream rises, although uh, 
you know, if it's going to be one of the traditional guys, it's going to come from the top half, Jared. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a great point there. Um, I, I think it, it, over the last few years, it's been easier for a player to break through at a Grand Slam than it has been at a 1,000. So seeing Alexander Zverev have that success at the 1,000 uh, tells me the door's wide open for some of these other guys uh, at this U.S. Open. I think this is the most wide-open slam we've had in a long time. I couldn't tell you who, who's going to win this one. Um, you know, we might even see John Isner come through and win it. It, yep. I really think it is that wide open. I'm not picking John Isner by uh, any means, but uh, really we could see uh, just about anyone come through and take this. And so it's really exciting to see just how wide open this draw is. And um, so let's focus in on, on the Americans really quickly. Um, obviously, Sam Querrigan moved around in the draw and now kind of finds himself in a nice spot in the same section as John Isner. Um, which American do you think will make it the longest? Which ones should we be looking out for to potentially make a run at this tournament? Well, I think Isner's a good choice. In fact, ironically, Jared, at Cincinnati, someone asked him uh, after he did lose to team, saying, uh, excuse me, after he did lose to Dimitrov, saying, you know, if someone were to tell you that you're one of the favorites for the U.S. Open, you know, what would you agree with that? And John Isner looked the guy right in the eye. He said, "No, you know, I, I don't, I haven't deserved that." Um, and this is, you know, this is before names pulled out of the open and, and whatnot. And so, you know, Isner's whole career, he's been, he's reached one quarterfinal at a major that was at the U.S. Open years ago. Yet all of a sudden, again, I'll go back to both Nadal and Del Potro talking about him in Cincinnati years ago, saying, you know, this is a guy that nobody wants to play, and if he's hitting the hardest forehands of his career two weeks ago in the Cincinnati semifinal, the guy's feeling it. And, uh, again, most likely whomever's going to play him is going to get to a tiebreak. If John Isner can flip a switch and play tiebreakers a little bit better, sure, he's in there with a chance. And I, I would take him to be query if they meet up uh, in a couple of rounds. Absolutely. Uh, great insight, Pete, and uh, really appreciate being back on the show with you tonight. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for us as we head into day four of the U.S. Open uh, coming up just on the other side of the sunrise. And so we're looking for that forward to that. So for Pete Zebron, I'm Jared Pine saying good night and enjoy the 2017 U.S. Open. Good night.